0: Lots of stuff won't work. Don't only do what you know and like best. And third, hire people smarter than you. While that may sound like advice, like what kind of moron would do any one of those three? When you think about these and you give thought to these three principles, the beauty of that, there are 20 more that are just as valuable. And these are written by a friend named Scott Miller, who has written two wonderful books in the universe that I have enjoyed immensely. One of them is called Management Mess to Leadership Success. And Scott was on our program several months ago to discuss that. But even better than that, he sent me the book called Marketing Mess to Brand Success. And I said, oh, it looks like we've got a series here. And when I read the book, I didn't just like this book, I loved this book. So I'm gonna hold it up, Marketing Mess. If you can see this, I've got a virtual background, but it's called Marketing Mess to brand success, written by Scott Miller. I'm gonna tell you, Scott, and who Scott is, in the event you don't know. But give me just a second, today's show is sponsored by Climber. I'm Chuck Garcia. I am the host of A Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation. And our show today is sponsored by Climber, CLMBR, the most efficient full-body cardio and strength fitness machine available with instructor-led on-demand and fitness classes. Key investors in Climber include Novak Djokovic. Jay-Z, and Ryan Seacrest. To learn more about Climber, go to clmbr.com. Use code CHUCK250 at checkout to save $250 on your full paid offer. Climber also offers a variety of very convenient interest refinancing option. So click www.climberclmbr.com and input your code CHUCK20. Offers cannot be combined and only valid on full pricing. So Scott, Jeffrey Miller, welcome back to A Climb to the Top.
1: Doc, thank you, man. I'm honored to be back on your platform. What a great pleasure it is to see you again. Thanks for turning your spotlight on to me for Marketing Mess to Brand Success.
0: Well, you bet, Scott, but you made it, you made it really easy because I remember when I read your first book, Management Mess, and I was like, this is a really good book, and it was vulnerable, and it was powerful. And what you really talked about is experience is a name you give to your mistakes. Yeah. So a little bit of time came between then and the publication of your next book. But before we get into that, to our listeners who may not know you, you have been with this wonderful organization called Franklin Covey, who is behind the great book, The the, the Bible Out There, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But Scott, tell us what you are doing now in the transition from Franklin Covey, still Franklin Covey, but also what you're doing for Scott Miller as well.
1: Well, thank you for asking. So 25 years with the Franklin Covey Company, before that four years with the Walt Disney Company. Right. I served for about eight years as the chief marketing officer for Franklin Covey and the executive vice president of thought leadership in that I I, I host the world's largest leadership podcast and I, I lead their books in media strategy. So I separated from the firm on very good standing and uh, the CEO asked me if I would stick around for three years as an independent advisor and continue to help to host their podcast and drive their thought leadership strategy. And that allowed for me to pursue some of my own passions, no longer as an executive officer in a public company. There's some weight off my shoulders there. Yep. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm blogging, I'm writing, I'm speaking, podcasting, and uh, have many more books planned, not just in the Mess to Success series, but also in a, another series I'm offering called Master Mentors with uh, Harper Collins. So I'm having a blast. I'm 53. I have boys that are six, nine, and 10 with my wife. And so I'm able to spend a little more time making them a priority in my life right now. So I'm very blessed and grateful for this transition outside of Franklin Covey, but still you know, part of the family.
0: Well, as I, as I read the book, you know, it was a personal account. was certainly written in your voice. And you spoke of your family and the love of your wife and your children. But there's an interesting word that you include right in the book that I think as a father of four myself, what we know is we go from an organization where there is enormous pressure and expectations and it's often a mess. And then we go home and you see toys all over the floor and it's a mess and someone's hungry and someone's springing. And yet the love that you have for both sides of your life came through on on, on both of these books, but especially this. But here's the big question. You decided to call this series and your first management and your second marketing and what's to come is job. The big word mess. Right. Why did you choose that word?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very deliberately. You know, like you, I'm a podcast host. I've I've just finished my 150th episode for Franklin Covey. And, you know, my experience after having been in this business for 30 years, the leadership business, is there's very few leadership books written by CEOs or entrepreneurs or any successful business person teaching leadership that shows the underbelly of leadership. That it's tough. It's not for everyone. Not every Everyone should be a marketer, and everyone should be a CEO, and we all have a mess in our lives. This is a fact, and I think philosophically, after having you know, hired hundreds of people and having to terminate dozens of people, that we tend to learn more from our messes than we do from our successes. We tend to learn more from our leaders' messes than we do from them just bragging about all their successes. I actually think it's the finest leaders that exercise the vulnerability and the humility to teach through their own messes. And so I wanted to build a series that talked about from mess to success. Just own your mess. Because when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. Not to wallow in them, not to make excuses, but to talk about it freely and openly. And I just found after you know, almost 40 years in business now, not quite 40, 35 years, that people want to work for leaders who are relatable. People want to have a culture and environment where they're not fear-based, where they can talk about their mistakes, where actually it's okay to make a mistake. And that culture helps you kind of move through it to success. So the whole series, to your point, is from mess to
0: success. Just well, what you, what, what you exhibited and what I read about is, as you know, Scott, I'm an executive coach to many, many companies, and I worked on two yeah. succession plans where we were, we were helping. I was helping to develop who was going to be the next CEO. And interestingly enough, a a, a, interestingly enough, those projects were in my head when I was reading your book, because what the what the board of directors had said very clearly in both of these projects, the three top characteristics we want for their next CEO. It had nothing to do with where they went to school. Their pedigree, it's not that it wasn't important, but they said, here are the three characteristics. Number one, someone who exhibits grace under fire, can stay calm under enormous pressure. Number two, one who resolves conflicts effectively. And number three, showing an empathetic leadership style. I said the days of the 800-pound the gorilla bossing people around in a command yeah. environment are yeah. gone. So you must have mustered a lot, of vulnerable, a lot of courage to be able to bring these stories where other people would have said, man, this guy, what's wrong with him? How did you come to peace with that was going to be your approach? Was it hard?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was probably a risk. I mean, right. I'll, I'll probably never work in an in a, in a organization again. I'll have to be a successful entrepreneur, which I hope happens. I came to realize that the best leaders that I worked for were not the ones that were buttoned down and appeared perfect and everything was gleaming. It was those that had had some setbacks in life, personally and professionally, and were quite public about talking about them. Not gratuitously, right? Not having a confession personality, but I just found great power And this concept of vulnerability, I think vulnerability is a leadership competency. So I decided at age 50, I was going to kind of own my story, own my journey, the things that I'd done well, things I'd done poorly, the things that were public and not public and give permission for other people to be more accepting of their story, their journey and be okay with your messes because all of our lives are a mess and everybody knows it as much as you may try to fake it. Everybody knows your credit score. Everybody knows your sexuality. Everybody knows your net worth. I mean, generally speaking, people know. So stop hiding it and just like own it, love it, and work through it and teach through it. So for me, it was a bit of a bold stretch, but at the age of 50, I decided I was just going to be more transparent. And if I could help other people own their mess by talking freely about mine, And that was a huge legacy I could leave to not just my colleagues, but to readers and to people of my followers online and such. And I think it's actually been a good decision.
0: Well, I appreciate that because as I sometimes stare down the face of my Columbia students, they come in needing to be perfect. And the first rule I give them is: don't ever be afraid to make a mistake. Be afraid of not learning from those mistakes. That's what—that's one of the big themes I got out of your book. Is really the encouragement to—and in fact, one of your principles: try, fail. I read exactly the words, but it was—you know—don't be afraid to screw. Oh, uh, uh, lots of stuff won't work. Stuff won't (laughs) work. That was a good chapter. And just try. But you talked about the innovations and and like in good to great, turning the flywheel just a little bit at a time, and turning the flywheel and making sure that whatever that is, you're going to get through it. But here's something big. And there's a chapter you wrote that I think was to me, the most important part of the book. And it may surprise you. Utah has a big basketball tradition between a guy named John Stockton and Carl Malone What talked about was the assist, you know, Stockton to Malone. I want to use that metaphor because I think so much of what you talk about is the need for internal buy-in that you have two customers. You have the people you're trying to reach that are going to drive revenue. But more important than that is the foundation by which you're going to do yeah. your job well is based upon the ability to collaborate with others, that all of us, what yeah. you talked about. And I want the listeners to key in on this because it was a really cool metaphor. stockton to Malone, chief sales officer, chief marketing officer, different complementary skills. Can you explain that chapter and why the, the metaphor of the assist yeah. is important?
1: Yeah, I'm not a big uh, basketball follower, but, you know, like you said, the duo here was John Stockton to Karl Malone. And I may have this not exactly right, but one of John Stockton's key legacies, what his his job was, in essence, to get the ball up to the net so that the much, perhaps even more talented in some ways or taller, Karl Malone could dunk it in. Now, I've simplified that story, but I love it because nobody thought John Stockton was a less valuable player, In fact, he might even been paid as much or more than Karl Malone. I don't know. His legacy is certainly intact in in the, the, the histories of basketball. But I saw marketing and sales very similar. I think two of the biggest cancers in every organization, first is gossip, is duplicity. It's the biggest cancer in every company, is gossip. The second biggest cancer, I think, is the ongoing tension, blame, between sales and marketing. And that I wanted to set a new legacy to where I would eliminate that, that I, even though I was a sales vice president, I was responsible for hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue on the sales side before I came to the marketing side. And in the chapter, I talk about how the executive vice president of sales and the executive vice president of marketing were peers. We made the same amount of money. We reported the CEO, but I decided to subjugate. I decided to take a step and make sure that I was serving him and his needs. Again, We both had strong personalities, we are good friends to this day, but I just wanted to break the cycle of marketing, cooking stuff up, and then blaming sales when it didn't work, or sales blaming marketing for missing their goals. And I wanted to position marketing in a way to recognize that I think too many marketers talk too much about impressions, likes, and follows, and brand, and brand equity, and those are important things i won't distinguish brand equity i work for one of the biggest brands in the world but you can't staple brand equity to the back of a bank deposit slip and fund payroll i mean maybe ethereally you can by the end of the day there's got to be cash in the bank you got to have paying customers so and
0: i devoted a chapter to that well mine that's just,
1: right yeah. right I'm, I'm just very passionate around making sure that marketing understands your role is to drive revenue and set sales up for success. You are John Stockton and sales is Carl Malone and both are vital and valuable and well-paid and they can't work out the other. And I just, that's my philosophical bent. And I'll bet you in some cases, sales leaders might like this book more than marketers do. Because in some cases I take marketers to task to re-transform the conversation around what is the relationship? What is the high trust relationship between sales and marketing and how do their teams align and build around that. So that's yeah. the metaphor of Stockton to Malone.
0: No, I really liked it. But as I as I continue to read through the book, what hit me was something that I can't say I was surprised, but knowing your style, you spoke very much of your intuition, your instincts, your 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 very your big personality. You cast a big net, you put a lot of fish, you got a way to do it. And not everybody does it your way. But it was interesting how throughout the book, right somewhere in the middle, you talked about the the importance of instilling processes. And and while when small companies go to medium and big, what everybody complains about, we become bureaucratic, what happened to us? Yet you didn't. That wasn't your point. But I loved. I want you to explain that, but also your orientation toward your style and how all processes don't get in the way, you're you're just finding excuses to to, to inhibit what is the The advancement. Talk about why that. I wasn't expecting that, and I loved it. Talk about why you wrote that chapter.
1: Well, and this may not be everybody's experience, but my experiences has been generally that you know creative types, right brainers, tend to gravitate towards you know marketing and advertising agencies and careers and divisions. And that obviously is a blanket statement. It's not entirely accurate, but I think there's directional accuracy in that. And that I think a lot of creative types don't enjoy processes. they're constrictive they're forcing, they're limiting. And big thinkers and visionary marketers like to express their ideas. And we can go off on a rat, rat hole, right? Chasing, I think Donald Miller calls it like a mouse chasing a rat in a wind chime factory or something <laughs> like that. I've got it wrong, right? I mean, that can be mm-hmm. marketing. So I was just being very vulnerable, talking about how the more disciplined marketers that worked for me were trying to install some systems, communication systems, you know, digital asset management systems. And I was used to operating in a fairly everybody come in, let's talk about this, right? And as the division moved from four people to almost 40 people, we had to have processes. Stuff was being dropped through the ground. I could no longer hold instant meetings with, you know, everybody dropping what they're doing. And for too long, I think people managed their style, accommodating my style. And the company's needs got bigger than just, you know, managing towards Scott's style. So I share some, you know, very vulnerable stories around how I torpedoed some of the systems that I found limiting and how as a creative mind you have to come to a point to where you appreciate that systems are there to not just help you but they also might be there to protect your team from you every team sometimes needs to be protected from their leader if it's their energy their distraction their nonstop ideas It might be, you know, Liz Weisner in a book called Multipliers. I love this book. I think it's the best leadership book ever written. And she mentions an oracle on her door. She had a sign that said, ignore me as needed to get your job done. And I think in some cases, (laughs) yeah, I think in some cases, marketers (laughs) need to do the same thing. You got to protect your team from you and you have to be able to recognize when is your creativity out of control and needs to be focused with good processes.
0: Yeah, and I appreciated that because I think all of us struggle with that, particularly the entrepreneur, you and I both yeah. represented very large brands, yeah. we, we appreciated that the process is the one thing we can all agree on, your style yeah. in particular, not unlike mine, very energetic, lots of ideas, but often that leaves a lot of confusion, because, yeah. you know, my boss said 10 things, what am I supposed to do? I'll well, right. the three best, no, they're yeah. gonna pick all 10. And they're gonna do a mediocre job on 10. So this gets to the next chapter that I really enjoyed. And I think this is the college professor in me. I don't teach to volume. I teach to impact. But when you talked about this is more is not better. Better is better. And I think in this world, people think that the more that they give, that that's going to be better. Talk about the importance of this chapter. And I want to repeat that to, to our listeners. More is not better. Pause for dramatic effect. Better is better. Great lesson here.
1: This is a struggle for me, Chuck. I, I don't model this well. I love volume. I love bigger and better, right? I, I love, you know, I love shock and awe. And uh, it's one of my messes, quite frankly, is my sort of unbridled creativity, which is my biggest asset, is not surprisingly my biggest liability. You know, it comes from this concept: there will always be more great ideas than there is capacity to execute. Right? To mention the book you quoted, Good to Great and Jim Collins. It's your, your flywheel, your hedgehog. You know, he calls them BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. Mm-hmm. I read a book a couple of years ago from Brendan Bouchard called High Performance Habits. Phenomenal mm-hmm. book. Brendan's a fr- friend of mine. Yeah. And, and Brendan you know, wrote about this idea called PQO. He calls it PQO, prolific quality output. And he, like me, shares a very vulnerable story around his goal Was to become a speaker and an online trainer but he knew he had to write some books to build that profile so he had to resist his temptation to be into 10 15 things and become uncharacteristically devoted to a disciplined working schedule to get great books written so i share the chapter you know more is not better better is better is because a lot of us are tempted to value quantity over quality. It's a natural temptation in all areas of our life, whether it be parenting, whether it be our love relationships, whether it be our brand, whether it be clients, you name it. It's a great lesson. There will always be more capacity. Sorry, there'll always be more great ideas than there is capacity to execute. So you may have to put some mentors, some coaches, some guidelines, some processes in, some high courage people to say, Scott, you had 10 genius ideas this week. We, to your point, Chuck, you can't execute all of them. What's the one thing or maybe the two things we should be crushing as opposed to you know water skiing across eight or nine things? Let's scuba dive and score on one or two. I struggle with this, but it's exceptional advice for people that are thinking about how to position their brand, their own personal brand, well as someone who delivers what Brenda Bouchard says, prolific quality output pqo
0: well that leads to another really important chapter and i want to get to this what you described and certainly in my own experience when we started a sales campaign what do we do we find a bazillion targets out there we want to fish in the ocean we don't want to fish in a small lake so we think about who, who are our customers and we have to think big because if we're not thinking big, if our spreadsheet isn't big, if our targets aren't gigantic, we're not thinking big enough. You come along and you flip the model and you talked about in challenge number 11, define your smallest viable market. Yeah. Yeah. And as I read that, I said, it's, it's, you are one of the few who says, come down and find your avatar. Forget all, all those whales and elephants you're trying to hunt. This was, I think... Of all the challenges of the 30, this was the one that I think was the most valuable because it's counterintuitive. So to, to many people who are told, go out and hunt the elephants, talk about yeah. the development of that chapter. Really good one.
1: Yeah. Well, of course, we know the idea is not mine. It's Seth Godin's, right? Yeah, so no, Seth Godin. No, no. You give him a lot of about it. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep. But, I, but, I, but I, I'm a big, raving fan of Seth Godin. He's very good to me personally. Right. And so I credit Seth. by his book, This is Marketing. I think it's one of the best, if not the best marketing book Indeed. ever written. And he popularizes this idea of this again, counterintuitive marketing talent, which is don't go out and boil the ocean. No, everybody is not your customer. No, everybody is not your reader. Don't go after the largest viable market, which is everyone's temptation to, you know, quantify the business opportunity. Maybe that's great for your investors and your business plan. But at the end of the day, I think Seth, Proves this principle right, which is no. What is your smallest viable market? Who is your first buyer? What is their name? Who is your first podcast listener? What is her name? Right. And and it's really a difference between I call it net fishing and spear fishing. Right. There's a, there's a place for both, perhaps. Good man. But I think the most the most successful marketers, leaders, are those that are insanely clear who is their buyer, what is their circumstance, right? To quote quote Clayton Christensen, what is their job to be done? What problem are they hiring you to solve? Whether it be you on a restaurant or you on a clothing store or you have an Etsy account or whatever it is, what problem has someone identified in their life? And what do they call it? What words do they use to call it? Do they have budget for it? And how can you make sure that they know about you? Everyone's temptation, is to say, oh, yeah, well, my book really is for everyone. And my, no, it's not. My book's not for everyone. It is a temptation that all of us get sucked into. Bigger, think bigger. Think global. Think China. Think Asia. No, think what street and what city are your customers in and how do you go nail them and make them raving fans and have them evangelize for you and become your brand ambassadors. And although it's tough to do, it will pay you dividends down the road long term, like focusing on your largest viable market never could.
0: Well, this brought me back even to my sales training early in my career. My Bloomberg day is a concept called land and expand. Don't, don't, don't try to conquer the universe, find a very small part and start building out. I want to switch the focus here because there isn't you, you pay homage to two of your big heroes out there, certainly Seth Godin, and I appreciate that. He is awesome. But also the late great Clayton Christensen and I've loved how will you measure your life I use it in my classes my students find it an enormously impactful tell me what you learned about yourself as you were writing this books and how you measure your life whether it's based on Clayton Christensen's principles or your own
1: In fact, I think I even share a research study in the book about uh, the ability to change your mind, right? And move from a deliberate to an emergent strategy. You know, when you turn 50, something happens. I'm 52. (laughs) And, you know, you get a little less concerned about how big your house is and how expensive your car is. And you become more focused on your relationships. A pandemic will do that to you, by the way. You become more focused on your legacy. Not, Not... how will I be remembered, but whose life will I change? How, what are the names of the people whose 401ks will be bigger or whose financial security will be better or their self-confidence will improve? And so I, I think for me, what I've learned most from Clayton and from writing the book and from turning 50 and post-pandemic is I want a nice car, right? And I want to take nice vacations, but I want to leave a legacy of, of sharing the messes that I've struggled with successes that I've also had, but try to leave as big an impact as possible on helping other people learn from my mistakes. It helped to build their, like I said, self-confidence, their self-esteem, their self-worth, their 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 ability to build some wealth for their families as well. So I'm fiercely focused the next decades on my legacy, not how I'll be remembered, but the impact positively that I can have on as many people's lives to give them some of the wisdom that I've gleaned from other people. The book really is like you say, a, hom- a homage to, you know,
0: a lot of people,
1: not a lot of people, right? I'm just an aggregator. I'm not sure I've ever had an original idea of my thought. I'm a pretty good <laughs> aggregator. I'm pretty darn good at giving credit to others. Yep. And so I hope to spread that as much as possible.
0: And I appreciate that. And l- l- let's finish up with here. Our minimal or our viable market here, our avatar. It's yeah. 28, 29, six, seven years into the career. Male, female, they are emerging. They are looking for advice from guys like you. Yeah. Uh, us, All of us trying to help them because those of us that pass 50 recognize that we're put on the planet to make the world. To, yeah. you, you, Scott, and I both go to work in the service of someone else's success. I can't always say I did that. I suspect you would probably say the same until all of a sudden we have something that inspires us to want to bring that to others. So let's leave with, uh, uh, for for the 28-year-old who is listening to the show, is a working professional, what do you want them to do with your book after they finish reading it? You
1: know, this may be an indirect, great question, by the way, this may be an indirect outcome. Um, Two things, your reputation, your brand, what you have one, either created deliberately or created accidentally or haphazardly, Your brand is merely the collection of all the decisions you make. All the lies you tell, all the truths you tell, all the apologies you offer, all the ownership you take. Your reputation is merely a collection of all your decisions in life. Remember that. Secondly, all that matters in life are relationships. It's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Relationships with your customers, with your competition, with your investors, with your family with your ex-friends, with your colleagues. All that matters in life are relationships and you should be fiercely focused on building as strong, mutually beneficial, trustworthy relationships as possible. One of my favorite quotes came from a a gentleman whose name I didn't catch when I was giving a, a keynote a few years ago. When I asked him what his takeaway was from my hour and a half keynote, he raised his hand and he said, I'm going to begin behaving myself into a reputation of being trusted by others. I'm going to behave myself into a reputation of being trusted by others. And I hope that that's an outcome of people reading this book, whether it be your vendors, your clients, your future customers, your internal stakeholders, whoever, behave yourself into being trusted by others.
0: Yeah. And you're describing what we call the as if principle. Behave as if yeah. you are whatever I that. Said. No, that, 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 that's wonderful advice. Well, to, to our listeners, I'm Chuck Garcia. Uh, my guest today is Scott Jeffrey Miller, who wrote a series of beautiful books. Actually, oh, one last question. I see behind you. I have had the joy of reading Management Mess, Marketing Mess, but yeah. there's another thing with a different color called job mess. What, what can we expect in the future?
1: Well, there are six more coming. So <laughs> uh, Marketing Mess uh, publishes on May 11th. Uh, job Mess to Career Success. That publishes in January of 2022. It's my next one. It's the experience of all of my success as a career coach and as a, a an executive officer in a public company work, working, living around the world. So Job Mess to Career Success comes in January. That's followed by then communication mess to influence success coming out, uh, in 2022 late. And then we'll have sales mess to revenue, success, parenting mess to launch success. There's a uh, relationship mess. There's a whole bunch coming out over the next eight or 10 years.
0: You're, you're redefining what the word mess means. So, <laughs> so a couple other things on Amazon, uh, where, where can we yeah, find it? And then where do yeah, we, you can visit,
1: you can visit uh, Scott, You can buy the books on all of the, um, major book retailers, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in books and mortar or digital. It's kind of hard not to find my books these days, fortunately. I
0: appreciate that. Well, Scott Miller has been our guest. And Scott, thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Scott has just given a world of great insight and advice. But also, I am recommending these wonderful books. I read I read Marketing Mess in Two Sit-Ins. I couldn't put it down. And each one of those, they were very personal, written in Scott's voice, even when Scott admitted that he had lunch with his fiercest competitor and people couldn't believe you. What? And he, he was very clear. Scott, you were very clear about there are boundaries you didn't cross. But that I think that's part of the mess here where, where we are hoping to provoke you to think differently about the rest of the world will give you conventional wisdom. And Scott, while there was a lot of wisdom in there, you are anything but conventional. And that's why I love having you on the show. Thank you so much.
1: I need you as my agent, a publicist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love Ste- it. Thank you. You're, thank you for your
1: generosity and thank you for your abundance. Uh, literally giving me a second round on your your program, your platform. I'm grateful. Uh, for-
0: I appreciate it. You, you were great on the first one. So I'm Chuck Garcia. You can always reach me at chuckgarcia.com. I am very proud to have announced last week the launch of our Emotional Intelligence Lab. It's our online learning platform. I also want to thank our sponsors, Climber C L M B R. They have redefined the climbing machine. They are, their investors include Novak Djokovic, Jay-Z, and Ryan Seacrest. You can go to clmbr.com, climber.com. And for 250 buck discount, type in Chuck 250 if you buy it. Thank you to Climber. Thank you to to Scott Miller for bringing your wonderful work into the universe. Chuck, thank you. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, we are signing off. Good night.